The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. We're at the starting line. You ready? I heard nothing, so no, but we're going to get there. Um, Actually, to say this better, we're back at the starting line. Um, Last year, or earlier this year, we started Romans, and we pushed the the pause button on on Romans, uh, I believe sometime back in March, and I am so excited for this time to step back into this book. It is foundational, Um, absolutely foundational. Um, and, and I'm excited to get back into it. Let me lay some groundwork for us. So here at Stone Oak Bible Church, our, um, our norm, it's weird to have a norm, by the way, in COVID, but our norm at Stone Oak Bible Church is to preach through books of the Bible in a, in a, in a kind of a slow verse-by-verse way. It's, that's our norm. That's what we typically do. And so with the book of Romans, that's exactly what we are going to, to do. We're going to walk through this, and, and we know that this is going to take some time, and we are okay with that. We're going to take some breaks along the way, um, but, w- but we're okay with this. We're, we're excited about this, but there's a couple things that we need to kind of look out for as we step back in. Um, the first one is, as we do this, it could be easy for us to miss the forest for the trees, as the expression goes. What, what I mean by this is for us to get so focused on the small parts that we've don't see how it fits in the larger picture. And this is really important in Romans because we're going to tackle some very difficult texts. And if you take them out on their island, it leads you to some weird places. But if you bring it back, you realize that it, that it fits. So, so what we're going to do is as we zoom in, we're going to take moments and we're going to be very intentional about as we're zooming in, we're also going to pan out. We're going to see how we fit See how we got here um, and, and try to pull it all together. And, and by the way, the second thing I want us to consider here as we start, um, I don't know if you realize this, but, but the, the book of Romans is actually one letter. It's one letter written by Paul to the church in Rome. And, and this letter is so incredibly logical it builds. It just takes one step upon itself, the entire letter. It is one letter that just builds, and it's because of how logical this book is. I'm going to be honest. This book is, is really helpful to read in one sitting. So I want to start at the beginning by giving you a challenge. I want you to consider taking a moment Grabbing your Bible, not right now, but, but later, grab your Bible, open to the, the, the book of Romans, find a comfortable spot, not, not like a real comfortable spot, I don't want you to doze, okay? Find a mostly comfortable spot, make sure there's coffee involved, at least for me, that's how all good things happen, and, and read the book of Romans in one sitting, you hear that and you think that's crazy because Romans is 16 chapters and that's just insane. I did some research on this. 
And if you're an average to below average reader, no one has to admit to this, but average or below, it will take you less than an hour to read Romans cover to cover, all right? I know you got an hour. I I know you got this. And here's what else I know. You won't regret having done it. I I guarantee that you will not get done with Romans and say, well, that was a waste. No, you won't. You won't regret this. I I, I can say that with with crazy amounts of confidence that you're not going to regret it. So I I want to just challenge you to consider this with me, joining me, and, and just at some point, you know, don't, you know, watch the, the first half of that NBA game. Um, put down Netflix for, for an hour, whatever it is for you. Cancel Netflix. Um, I, that was him. Um, and and, and to, to cut out an hour and just read it. I mean, it's, it's, it, will, it will be incredible. So I, I, I hope that you'll join me in this challenge. So um, let me now shift gears and, 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 and look at where we are joining back up, okay? So this is, we are going to be starting into Romans chapter 5. Like I said, we started Romans earlier. We tackled the first four chapters. We're starting in chapter 5, verse 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can find your place with me right there. Um, while you're getting there, you're going to notice a huge problem right off the bat. It's a massive problem right off the bat, and it, it's the first word. So if you look at the first word of chapter five, it's this therefore. And um, this word tells us something. It tells us that there was something that came before this and that that something is important. Okay, so it's this word that says, you know, look back. So there's this old Bible study saying that if you see the word therefore, you need to ask what's the therefore, therefore. If you haven't heard that, it's, there it is. Um, and that's exactly what we, we, we need to do here. Um, so we see this and we see this, therefore, we need to ask what it's there for. And, and, and so here's what's happening here. Right at the beginning of chapter five, Paul is saying, before you zoom in, pan out. Before you zoom in, pan out. I've said some important things before this. You need to consider those things, know those things before you go further. You can't understand where we are and where we are going until you understand where we have been. That's what Paul is saying here. So quickly, real quickly, I want us to look back and find out what that therefore is there for. And and I want to be honest with you. It's been a long time since we've been in Romans. So I think we might use the kind of a fresh look at just a quick look at the first four chapters. So, um, and I will be quick because we got work to do. So it starts right at the beginning. If you look at Romans 1, Paul gives us this incredible truth and it's kind of the, not kind of, it is the foundational truth of the entire book of Romans. And he gives it real early. It's, it's Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says it's the power of salvation for everyone who believes, Jew first, also the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, here it is, the righteous 
shall live by faith. So here is our foundation. This is what the whole house is built on. The righteous will live by faith. Paul makes this radical statement here, and right after he makes it, he takes us on a bit of a journey that starts with God's judgment. So if you were to look in your text and, and, and follow with me here in the end of chapter one, we turn to looking at God's wrath. And if you remember, if you were with us, we talked about the simple fact that our tendency is to think that we're somehow less deserving of wrath than that guy or those people, that we're, for whatever reason, a little bit better off than the other heathens who deserve the wrath. And Paul here does a great job of tearing that down and say, no judgment is for all. All. That we are all sinners, that there's not one of us exempt. And so there's two truths here that set the stage. One is that our God does not sweep sin and evil under the rug. Ever. That is a really good thing, by the way. That is a really good thing. You do not want a God who ignores evil. And at the same time, you hope that your God will be nice to you being evil. You see this predicament? You don't want a God who just goes, here's a rug here, sweep it. You don't want that. You don't want an earthly judge to do that. You don't want a judge in our community to say, you know what, I'm going to ignore crime. Be the worst judge ever. We don't want our God to ignore evil in the same, in the same way. And Paul reminds us, he doesn't. Um, I love history. I don't know if anyone else does. I, I love history. And, and one of the things that you see in history that I love um, is that you look back and you see these truly inspiring things that just give you this incredible hope and uh, just that this actually happened, right? I love that about history. But at the same time, there's a heartbreaking part of history. When we look back on history and our heart breaks with things that we're not proud of. In fact, right now in, in kind of culture at large, we're kind of talking about this right now. We're wondering what to do with history we're not proud of. No matter who you are, where your political view is, um, our hearts should break when we look in the past and see things that we're like, that was awful. Church history has things that I look back on and I'm like, what were you doing in the name of Jesus? What was that? So we look back at history and we have these things that break our heart. And, and the reality is they should break our heart because we were created in the image of our just God our just God. And at the core of our being, we cling to the truth that one day it's not going to be broken like this. One day, all the wrongs are going to be made right. One day, this is going to be made right. We cling to this because we're not okay with a God who says, I see all that atrocity. Here's a rug. Sweep it. We're not okay with that. Our hearts cry for justice because we were designed like this. And now Paul is perfectly clear here in the beginning of Romans that our God is perfectly just, perfectly holy, perfectly all the time. 
that no sin is swept under the rug and that all sin is to be handled perfectly and completely. And because that is true, here's the second thing we see. The question for, for us today, as we read the beginning of Romans, is not, will the wrath of God be poured out on me for my sin? Will the wrath of God be poured out for my sin? That's not the question. The question for us as we look at Romans is, who is going to bear the wrath of God that's going to be poured out for my sin? Will it be me or will it be Christ? That is the, the, the question that, that Paul sets us up. In, in other words, the gospel is not come and, and sin doesn't matter anymore. There's no more wrath for sin. It's a free-for-all in the name of Jesus. That is not the gospel. The gospel says, come because Jesus Christ bears the wrath of all of your sin. All of it. He took it on himself. So Paul paints this, this picture of this. In, in chapter three, he makes it even more clear. He says, none is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's just making sure. Don't you dare try to put yourself in a camp that doesn't need grace. <laughs> he, he's putting us all on the same level playing field. And Paul begins to build this, and then finally, at the end of chapter three and four, we get to the what now moment, and this is where he brings us back to a salvation that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That this is the plan, not, not a new plan, the plan from the foundations of creation. I love the way Paul does this. He traces it through Abraham, grace through faith. David, grace through faith. This is the way that sinful humans know the salvation of our God. Grace through faith. And he paints this picture and sets this foundation. In other words, there's nothing that you and I, nothing that we could stand before the Lord and say to justify ourselves. Not a thing. There's nothing we could do or not do to justify ourselves. You cannot justify ourselves. The, the unshakable hope we have in the gospel is that we have been justified. And so it's kind of good news because we can kind of put down all the pretense. Like, like, you know, you cannot be good enough and you cannot work hard enough. You can only trust the one who is good and the one who did the work. That's the gospel. And that's the, that's the foundation that Paul sets in place for us as we get to chapter five. And so we get now to chapter five that says, therefore. In other words, since that is true, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Paul says, now we get to take some, some steps in Romans. So as we do this, I, I just want to let you know where we're going. I'm going to give it all away up front because the text pretty much gives it away. There's really not a lot of ways to preach this text and to be faithful to it. It kind of, Paul says here. Um, there are three results that Paul gives us of us being justified by our God. Three results. Uh, they're massive results, and I want to give them away up front, and then we will, what we'll do in the time we have left is we will work through these results from this text. The three results are this. Peace, access, hope. You're going to see it in the text. Peace, access, hope. 
And Paul lays them out. And so what we're going to do now, we're going to walk through these and kind of pick them apart a little bit. And we're going to start with the first part. So he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, Paul now says, we have peace through God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about peace. If you were to think in your mind, what's the opposite of peace? What, what comes to your mind? It's war. Um, division, 2020, um, hostility, conflict. Sometimes I think that we can approach our God as though our natural state is peace. Sometimes I think we can approach God like our natural condition is like peaceful friend of God. That's not what scripture says about you. You are not at peace. You are not a friend apart from Christ. Scripture says in your natural state, in your natural state, in the flesh, You are not a friend. You are actually, in the words of Scripture, an enemy. That you are alienated and hostile, as as, uh, Colossians 1 says. Later in this chapter, Paul's going to call you a couple times enemies. That you were enemies in your, in your natural state. See, Scripture is very clear. I, I, I hope that we see this. Scripture is very clear. I want to say this strongly. We need to see this. Scripture is very clear. The, the gospel is clear that we are not good people who now become better people with Jesus. We are not Good people becoming great people for Jesus. That is not what the gospel says. The gospel, scripture says, you are an enemy, and now through Christ you have been made friend. Friend from an enemy because of Jesus. So it's not a good to great in Jesus' name. It's an it's a enemy to peace. In Jesus' name. That's what the gospel says. I want to push this just a little further. Um, I don't know if you did this when you were a kid, but the peace that's talked about here is not like a truce. Have you ever, when you were a kid, did you ever do a truce? You'd like be smacking someone or pushing someone or pegging someone, and then you would get the last one and really nail them and then say, truce! Truth, ceasefire, like, all done, all done. I hate truths. I hate them. I hate them because they do nothing. You know, by the way, as a kid, you know someone's going to break this truce. As soon as you turn your head, you're going to get nailed. You know it. I hate truths because they do nothing to change the condition. It's just a ceasefire. It's just a ceasefire. It's a, it's a, Okay, for a moment, we're going to stop doing this. I want to be clear about something. The peace that is talked about here is not like a truce. It's not a momentary ceasefire. Um, 
a way to think about this is it's not as though God is up in heaven thinking, kind of resolving himself to not smite you. To not just smack you like, oh, but I call a truce. That's not the picture that scripture paints. The picture that, that scripture paints is we go from this state of hostility and war and wrath against God. We go from that to now peace, friend. We go from the battlefield to the family table. That is huge. This is not a a momentary ceasefire where God is just putting up with you and resolving himself not to smack you. That is not what peace is. The peace we have with God means that you are loved by your God and you are a friend of God through Jesus Christ. That is the peace. It's not just peace though. Let's keep moving. He goes on to say this. So therefore, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Therefore, we've been justified by faith so that through Christ, we now have access. Access to our God. Now, I, I think we can understand access real well, actually. Uh, so in a small way, if I were to take this, this is my phone and, and I were to, you know, start over here and pass it around the room, none of you could do anything with my phone. I don't know if you're a hacker. Maybe you, you can find some way. Chances are though, not one of you could do anything with this phone. Not one until it gets to my wife and she would open it up, but not one of you could do anything with this phone. And why is that? It's because you don't have access. And no matter how much you want to see the pictures that I take, you don't have access. Denied, right? So my phone has a a password that that you could use. It also has this facial recognition that you can use. You don't have my password or my face. You got nothing. So access denied. We get access. We understand access. I think we've all had that annoying feeling of when you try to log into your account and the password is wrong and it's wrong in your keychain somehow and then you like, I can't use this service anymore. There's no way to get it. Access denied. We get access. We understand access. And, And although that is true, When we think about our God, I think although we understand the idea of access really well, I think we struggle with access the most because we take it for granted the most. Here's what I mean by by this. Um, I think when we come to our God, we get the impression that if this were the Old Testament God, he had a phone that was password protected. No one could just get to his phone. He has to give you access to that. He's like a password-protected phone that he passes around and you can't get in. I think we get the impression that that was the Old Testament God, but now what the New Testament God is, is he went into his phone and he just took off the passcode so that now all of us can just get in and 
all of us have access, and it's just free access to, to our God, granted all of us in. It's like with peace, our default position is just access. I almost think that we can believe, I'm going to say it, the lie that it is our birthright to have access to our God. We have the right to come before our God. Now, you absolutely have the right through Christ, but apart from that, you have no right. This is this whole idea of Old Testament God having the locked phone and New Testament God having the unlocked phone, this is not what, what Scripture has said. It's not like your God has, has taken, you know, passwords off and given you all access. It's that through Christ, he has now given you access to his, his phone. It's a terrible analogy, but I'm going with it. I'm, I'm in now, all right? It's like... He's given you the password through Christ. It's like he's given you his face for the facial recognition and you're in. That's a different story than just thinking you're born with it. No, it was earned for you by Christ. So in in other words, our God, he is holy and your sin is gross. But now through Christ, you have now been given access to come before your God. And I want to I take this just a little deeper before we move on. So it, do you remember the moments around Christ's crucifixion? There were a lot of things that happened in these moments. Um, there were miracles that were taking place in these moments. So if you think back uh, uh, to, the, to the Gospels, you, you, you read, darkness fell over all the land. You read about like the, the, the earth shaking and rocks cracking and you read about graves being opened. I mean, you read about truly incredible things. There was one more thing though that happened in the moments of Jesus' death. Scripture tells us that in this moment, the curtain veil the curtain veil that separated God's people from the holy of holies, the place where God was. So literally the curtain that formed the barrier between the people of God and the presence of God. In the moment of Christ's death, from the top to the bottom, this thing was ripped down the middle. In this moment, just ripped and it changed everything everything for the people of God. They knew, they knew in the Old Testament saints, they knew that they could not just come into the presence of the Lord and live. All throughout the Old Testament, you read that, okay, one high priest was given the access to, to go in, but the people, no. You have no access to step into the Holy of Holies and to be in the presence of God. No access. They understood this. And then, church, Christ died and tore that curtain from top to bottom. Just tore this curtain. And Christ, the perfect Holy One, gave himself as a sacrifice for sin so that now, through Christ, there is no more curtain. There is no more curtain. The reason I said that I think that access, although we understand the idea of it, 
we fail to understand how big it is, it's because it's the easiest one for us to take for granted. I believe we start to think that it's just our right and that somehow God feels lucky when we come into his presence. Like, yay! Like, there is a love that your God has for you, but don't for a moment think that God is just lucky to have you on his team and lucky to you, for you to come into his presence. That right was earned. That right was paid for. Don't take it lightly. We, uh, we can take the fact that you and I right now, if we want to cry out to our God, we take it for granted that scripture says he hears. We take it for granted that we now, through Christ's work, are now indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that he is here in us. We take that for granted. But church, access is no small thing. No small thing. God is perfect, holy, and you are not. And you and I still have no business coming before his presence. Let's be clear about this. He's still perfect and holy, you're still not, and you have no business coming before his presence. But thanks be to God that he did not leave us in that moment. By faith, Paul says this, he says, we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. It's by faith, not works. It's by faith and not even our best intentions. It's by faith. That we, and it's in his grace that we stand. Do you notice that? This is not like a timid posture here. This is standing. We stand in his grace. In other words, our confidence in the access of God that we have now through Jesus causes us to stand in his grace. To stand in his grace. We are justified by grace through faith and because of Christ, in Christ, through Christ, we have peace. We have access And then lastly, we also have hope. I want to read this. So therefore, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in in the hope we have in Jesus. So by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, we rejoice in the hope that we now have. So let's talk a bit about this hope because it looks different than maybe we think it should look. Paul says this about this hope. Not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. There is so much here. You know what I thought about, though, that as I was reading this? Um, I thought about, you know what a fair weather fan is? <laughs> that was cheap. That's cheap. Um, yeah. Um, the thing I think about, though, is a couple years ago when the Cubs won the World Series. Um, a Fairweather fan, by the way, if you've never heard this expression, it's, it's the fans who are there when it's good and somehow they're gone when it's bad. It's a Fairweather fan. 
And I remember when the Cubs won the World Series a couple years ago, and then all of a sudden, everyone and their aunt and their uncle and their kids were all Cubs fans. I remember seeing hats, jerseys, and it was crazy. And it was like, you know, um, where were these hats over the last hundred years as the Cubs stunk? No offense if you're a Cubs fan. I'm a Ranger fan. We stink. So I can, I can say this. Uh, where were these fans? Where were these fans? It wasn't until the team won that all of a sudden there was some pride in that, in that team. That's a fair weather fan. You, you enjoy the ups while bailing on the downs. That's a fair weather fan. Listen, the hope we have in Christ is not a fair weather hope. It's not a fair weather hope. It's not a hope that's there in the good and absent in the bad. In fact, as Paul says, it is from the struggle, the trial, it is in the suffering that we see the hope of Christ most vividly. That we're able to rejoice in the hope we have. We do not have a fair weather hope. The hope we have in Christ is durable. It is sturdy. It is not flimsy. It is not breakable. Notice Paul says we rejoice in the suffering. He starts in the suffering. Knowing that suffering, he says, produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. So suffering produces endurance because we're carried through. We endure through the trial. Endurance, hope, and... Or endurance, character, and character, hope. In other words, suffering is a part of living in this fallen world. It is. Jesus does not promise that you will not suffer. Take it in. Jesus does not promise that you are not going to suffer. But he does promise to use the suffering that we face for our good. Because it's in the suffering, it's in the suffering that we experience real hope, among other things. I know many of you have gone through some incredibly difficult things in your life. Some struggles. In fact, if I were to just stop here, take this microphone, and have some of you come up and share, I'm sure you could have us in tears of of what you have gone through, of what you have faced. And I'm willing to bet that, that none of you are saying, give it to me again. I want to do it again. I want to go through that again. I doubt any of you feel that way. But I also am pretty confident that each one of you, as you share that story, will share the depths of God's love and grace that you saw through that time that you would never have experienced outside of that time. We don't long for suffering we long for the presence of Christ. And sometimes Jesus in his grace will say, well, let's go through something so you can know me more. Our God is incredible. I think about it like the Olympics. And um, the Olympics were supposed to happen, by the way, this year and didn't. Um, I love the Olympics. I, I think it's awesome that, you know, 
I, I literally don't care about any of these sports except for every four years when all of a sudden I really care about swimming and all of the things that we watch on the Olympics. I love it. I, I love the Olympics and, and I love the ceremony and the drama and I think about the Olympics and all the things that the athletes do that are just incredible. But as we watch the Olympics from our couch, as we're just watching the Olympics from our couch, and some of us might wish that we could get out there and do what these athletes are doing. That we could flip, spin, cycle, throw things, uh, swim, uh, all the things that they do. And we imagine what that feeling of winning a medal and the, the pride for the nation, all the things that we imagine with that. But you know what? The way to get to that point is suffering. All the time. I mean, 10 out of 10. The way to get to that point is suffering. The way that these athletes got there is through suffering. The suffering of training, the sweat, the pain, the discipline. It is suffering that got them to that place. You develop endurance, character, and strength when you go through these things. And that strength is what gives you the confidence and the hope that you need to compete. Um, It would be, I don't need to tell you this, you know this, but it would be absolutely foolish for you to think that you could just get up and nail a floor routine after watching the Olympics, okay? Please don't try it. It'd be foolish for you to think, you know what? Get me in the pool with Phelps, I got it. It'd be foolish for you to think, I think I could beat Bolt. I think I got it. It'd be foolish. Why? Because you haven't suffered the way they have. Your legs haven't burned the way theirs have. In the same way, it's foolish for us to think that our hope in Christ, that our hope in Christ is going to be strengthened and cultivated apart from stretching, trials, and suffering. It's foolish. It's like doing a floor routine off the couch. Don't do it. Hope is not, church, the absence of suffering. Hope is strengthened and produced, as Paul says, by suffering. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And church, our our God is so good that he not only uses the good for the good, he uses the trials for the good. That's awesome. Who do we have to fear with a God like that? Come what may, as, as Job says, you give, you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why? Because our God is that good. Our God is that good. And I want to say this again, the hope that's produced in the trial is not a flimsy one, a breakable one, or, or a weak one. It is a strong hope that will not break under pressure. Like a trained athlete, strong and able to compete. And Paul says, Paul says it like this, that, that hope does not put us to shame meaning it's not going to leave us high and dry. It's not going to put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to us. I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to miss this. We have peace and access and hope that will never fail. And why is that? Because God in his great love poured his spirit in us. That's why. In other words, he takes us who have no peace and he indwells us so that those who are without peace, now he is their peace. He says, I will be peace in them. More than that, he takes us who have no access and he indwells us with the spirit so that those who have no access to the temple, he now makes a temple in his name. He takes those who have no hope and he indwells us with his spirit so that we, his people, have hope that never fails because hope lives in us through his spirit. Notice just how incredible our God is. Our comforter, the Holy Spirit, indwells us, empowers us, strengthens us, seals us so that we now have peace, access, we now have hope. And if you hear nothing else, I want you to hear this. God did this. This is not something you did. It's not something you are doing. It's not something that you will do. It is something done by your God. God did this. In fact, uh, I want us, as we close, I want us to look back at our text one more time. Uh, just do a brief flyby of these first five verses, okay? And what I want you to do is I want you to notice the verbs. Not just the verbs, participles, the action. Notice the actions, Okay? Uh, that are taken in this. Notice the verbs, the actions, when God is the actor. When God's the one doing them. You're gonna notice them, they're the bookends, okay? They're the bookends, they're the, verse one, have been justified. God did this, it is past tense. Have been justified. Then we move to the end and we see that God's love has been poured. That again, the Holy Spirit has been given. Again, these are past tense. These things have already happened. Past tense. Now I want you to contrast with me just as we land today. Would you notice the other verbs? The verbs in the middle of the sandwich. So you have our bookends of God did this, and now two to four, with the exception of only one of these verbs, and that's in verse two that says, we have also obtained. That's a perfect verb, and it's based on a past tense work of God, but we'll set that one aside, and I want you to notice with me all of the other verbs in this section. We stand. We rejoice. Knowing. Producing. Hope does not put us to shame. All of these are present, ongoing, and future things. So don't miss this. God's work, those are past tense verbs. God's work is done, completed for you. Past tense. Your response is ongoing, present, and future. God's work is done so that now we can walk, that we can stand.
understand that we can live, that we can know him, that we are saved, that we live in him. In other words, I'm not a dancer, so, but you're not the lead in the dance. Again, I'm not a dancer, so I think that means something here, but you're not the lead in this dance. You are not the first mover, and your salvation is not based on what you've done. Christ is the lead. Christ is the first mover, and your salvation is based on what Christ has done. You are justified by faith completely. And your role in this, your role in the gospel, is to respond to the completed work of your God and then to live in light of that work in obedience and joy. Through your, work, through your work and what you've brought to the table, scripture is very clear. You've earned for yourself hell, judgment and wrath, death, addiction, and bondage. That's what your completed work has, has given you. But scripture is also clear that the gospel did not, says that God did not leave us in that state and he did not give you what you deserve, but he willingly sent his son who came and completed a work that would be credited to you. He took what you deserve and gave you what he earned. And now in light of that, ours is to respond. Ours is to respond in faith. We have peace with God, access to God, hope of eternity with God through Jesus Christ. Now, I, wanna, I, I do want to close with this. Um, I would be a terrible pastor, terrible preacher, if I were to just look at you right now in this room and say, have more peace. Have more hope. Stand stronger in your access. Just do it. I'd be a terrible preacher that missed the whole point. Because... These things, church, are the fruit of, the results of being justified by grace through faith. In, in, in other words, the way to grow these things in your heart and in your life is not by trying real hard. It's by looking to Jesus. Stop trying to earn these things and start looking to Jesus look to him it's not have more peace it's look to Jesus who is peace it's not have more hope it's look to Jesus who is hope it's not stand more firmly no it's look to Jesus who is access and strength to stand in other words Christ does not just give you peace and hope and access he is peace hope and access look to him the call this morning is not try real hard it's look to Jesus I hope that the call every morning by the way here at Stone Oak Bible Church is just that look to Jesus I don't care if you are lost I don't care if you're old in the faith young in the faith I don't care look to Jesus that is our response and John 6 37 says for all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So I can say with complete confidence, look to Jesus. He will embrace you and not cast you out. So let's respond this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord, what 
an incredible truth. This never gets old. Help us never to get used to what we just talked about. Help us to be wrecked by the truth that you are our peace and hope and access, that you have justified us through your work. Now, Lord, we respond to the one who has paid it all. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name.